The subject of the talk tonight is purity and purification. In the last retreat I was teaching at Spirit Rock, somebody asked a question that went something like this. Sometimes you all uh, talk to us about just accepting ourselves and just accepting the moment, just the way the moment is, just the way we are. And other times you talk about all these great qualities we're supposed to be developing, like love and compassion and wisdom and concentration. They said, I'm confused. What is it I'm supposed to be doing here? Am I supposed to be accepting myself or am I supposed to be improving myself? Of course, asking this in a Buddhist context is always a little risky because uh, improving the self when there isn't supposed to be one is kind of a (laughs) risky project to spend a lot of time on. But I thought this was an interesting question because it actually goes to what I think is the heart of the Buddha's teachings as expressed in a concept known as the two truths, two different ways of looking at the world, both of which are important, uh, but that seemingly contradict one another. These two truths in the tradition are talked about as the conventional truth and the ultimate truth. And we might say for the purpose of understanding it tonight that conventional truth is the way we see the world when we look with language, with words. It's the way we usually look at the world. So, you know, looking really conventionally, we'd look this evening and we'd say, well, it's 7.30 p.m. and We're in the meditation hall and looking around, we see a woman, a man, Zafu, chair, floor, you, me, and so forth. That all makes really good sense. All these distinctions make a lot of sense. And it's very useful for socially relating. Because with distinctions like this, at the end of the retreat, I don't get into your car and drive away. And I hope you appreciate that. And at the end of the day today, you're not going to come into my room to go to sleep in my bed. And I will appreciate that. So these are very useful distinctions, this conventional truth. Time is an aspect of conventional truth. Time is a concept. Past and future, seven o'clock, tomorrow, yesterday, 30 years old, 60 years old. These are all concepts. So when we talk about, as we do, how with our Dharma practice, we develop over time through practice, we're in the conventional uh, realm. We're in the language of concepts. And we do, over time, develop in qualities like a little more equanimity, a little more patience, a little more kindness, a little more wisdom. These are the truths about Dharma practice. And this is not to deny the development of these qualities as they take place over time. This is absolutely true. So we could say that self-improvement is a truth within Dharma teachings, within Dharma practice. Or probably the way we prefer to say it is growth in the Dhamma. That we grow in the teachings, we grow in the truth. But it's an aspect of conventional truth. Now, an interesting thing about conventional truth is that it's from the Pali term, samuti satcha. Satcha means truth. Samuti has a really interesting uh, etymology. The term literally means all-concealing. So the implication is that the world of concepts is a truth, but it's a concealing truth. It conceals a more fundamental and more important truth from our eyes. So when all we see is the world of language and concepts, the conventional reality, we're blinded from seeing something more truthful, more underlying. This more underlying truth is called the ultimate truth. In Pali, the term is paramata satcha. Paramata means literally highest meaning truth. So the conventional truth is a truth, but it's not the truth with the highest meaning. 
To get to the truth with the highest meaning, we have to see beneath the obscuring truth of concepts and words. So let's just say that the ultimate truth is the truth we see when we look at the world without any language, without any words, without any concepts. Now, when we say reality in a Buddhist context, we mean a little something a little different than in a Western context. In a Western context, normally when people say reality, they mean the outside world, the physical world. But in a Buddhist context, when we say reality, we mean the reality of human experience. So I'd like to ask you to take a look. What is the nature of your human experience when it's not touched by language? Just in this moment, take a look. Open your senses. Open your awareness. What is the nature of your experience when no words intrude or shape or mold it? That means we can't be thinking about me or you because these are concepts. We can't move into past and future because those are concepts. What are we left with? Can you describe it? Kind of tricky, isn't it? How, you do, how do you describe something where words can't find a hold? You can't grasp it while you're experiencing it because if you grasp it and make any image of it, then words are coming in. So you almost have to enter it, abandon the words, and know you're in a territory that can't be described. And then as you come back out of that into the world of concepts and language, then you may have a little memory of what that was like. And so then language may come in again. So it's said that the ultimate truth is not describable. That's not describable. But that doesn't stop us from trying. So some of the words that uh, people have used, that practitioners have used, that you may be able to relate to, are words like being, now, arising, passing, vastness, still, empty, free, beauty, love. You might say that these are words that kind of point to the nature of reality, or as Suzuki Roshi said in his beautifully fractured English, the nature of things as it is. This is the realm of the ultimate truth. One aspect of this truth is that we're not in conflict with it. That there's a quality in this coming beyond words, there's a real quality of acceptance, of a radical kind of acceptance that doesn't have any kind of friction, as Rodney said last night, any struggle, any sense of disturbance with what is. So this movement of acceptance is a movement in the direction of an ultimate truth, of things as they are. And as we start to contact that more and more, we also find that there's a purity in the nature of reality, the nature of things just as they are, there's an incredible purity. When we open to this purity, we can connect with a sense of freedom in the here and now because of this lack of friction, lack of struggle, lack of conflict. And as we open to that freedom that is the way things are, it also doesn't stop there, but it furthers the journey. And it's really contact with this purity that provides the motive force that carries us along the path.
So we might say that the sense of self-improvement grows directly out of our ability to accept. The more deeply we can accept and open to things as it is, the more the journey unfolds for us spontaneously. And we make the first step on that journey when we turn to mindfulness. Because mindfulness is an aspect of this purity, of this ultimate kind of nature. So we could say that what our practice is about is understanding this ultimate nature and also the conventional nature of things. And in a way, you could say it's like understanding the impersonal quality of reality, but also not denying the personal. Dostoevsky has this famous line, I think it's at the start of Anna Karenina, where he says that every happy family is very much alike and every unhappy family is different in its own way. This is that juxtaposition of the impersonal and the personal. The ultimate reality is all alike. Your ultimate reality can't really be any different than my ultimate reality. Or we wouldn't be communicating about it. So the ultimate nature for you and for me is probably no different. This is all happy families. This is the purity. But the way that the conventional world springs up, there are differences. One of the ways that we see these differences are in the, uh, the ways that we suffer. The unhappy families are all different. And we could say that when we look at our suffering, we're, di- we're all different in that way. We have different tendencies. We get caught in different ways. This innate purity of mind in some traditions in Buddhism is called the Buddha nature. And it's described as basically having three aspects. It's awake, it's peaceful, and it's friendly. These are the three key pieces of our Buddha nature. And we activate it. We start to wake it up and, and touch it as we develop mindfulness. And it's really the activation of this Buddha nature that takes us down the path. As we touch it and activate it, it starts to wake up, and it has its own momentum. It will grow. It will deepen. It will expand all by itself. And it tends to do that as soon as we start waking it up with mindful attention until it hits an obstacle, which it always will. For us, as beginners on the path, it will hit an obstacle. The obstacles we could talk about as the five hindrances that Rodney talked about this morning. We could talk about various kinds of distracting thoughts that take us away from the present moment. In one of those directions, we get entangled in some kind of unhappiness. And we lose touch with the basic purity of our nature. And when we lose touch with that, the whole mass of suffering arises because we have forgotten how to contact that purity. We've lost touch with our innate nature. So now we're in the territory of uh, suffering, in the territory of confusion, in the territory of unhappiness. And in order to be free, we have to understand this side of things as well. We have to understand it clearly so that we're not trapped by it anymore. So I want to talk about this aspect of mind that engages us in suffering. These hindrances are deeply conditioned tendencies of mind. And I was reminded of this this afternoon. I was sitting at a table in the kitchen where I'm staying and looking out the window into the woods. And there was a tree that had fallen over and was leaning up at about a 45-degree angle and sticking about 10 feet into the air. And I saw a big bird uh, fly down to the ground and pick up what looked like a little snake about a foot long and fly up and perch on top of this fallen tree. And then it sat there. It was a hawk. I could then see it was a hawk. And trapped what looked like this snake under its claws. And as it sat there, it would reach down and take a bite out of the snake with its beak, chew it for a while, and swallow it. And then it would lean its head down 
take another bite, shake a piece off, and swallow it until the snake was all gone. And then it just sat on that, on that fallen tree for about 45 minutes in the sunshine, just kind of relaxing and enjoying this beautiful afternoon with a full stomach. I thought that's just what we tend to do after a good meal. But I thought this really pointed up the depths of the conditioned tendencies of mind. In the Buddhist tradition, we talk about these tendencies as greed, aversion, and delusion. Greed is so closely connected with the desire for survival and food. If we don't have food, we don't live very long as an embodied being. And at the same time, as, as in the animal realm, they need to eat other beings. So every animal wishes most deeply not to be eaten by another animal. And that's a source of fear and aversion. We don't want to surrender our life to become somebody else's meal. On the basic animal level, that's the reality in that realm. As animals ourselves, we've inherited all those responses. We've inherited this insecurity about bodily existence, this desire to continue, this fear of being terminated. And because we don't understand these forces clearly, we can't see them with wisdom very clearly, they drive us, they compel us. And these are the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion that the Buddha talked about again and again as the roots of our suffering. These are the very forces in the mind that inevitably bring us back to suffering. Until they're understood, until they're released, we are going to suffer. Greed is the tendency to reach out for the pleasant, the compulsive tendency to reach for the pleasant. Aversion is the conditioned tendency to push away what's unpleasant. Delusion is the cloud in the mind that doesn't see the operation of greed and aversion. So greed or aversion are always accompanied by delusion. Why? Because if we could see them, we wouldn't do it. Nobody wants to be greedy. Nobody wants to be aversive. Nobody wants to be dominated by fear or aggression. But because they operate unconsciously, we don't see it. And so we're taken over and we're compelled. We're driven by these forces. So in the uh, most deeply conditioned sense, it is these age-old forces of greed, aversion, and delusion that bring us into suffering bring us into confusion over and over. Now there's another way that these manifest, especially in the retreat environment. And it has to do with kind of a developmental, I want to talk a little bit about a developmental and psychological process here. As we have grown up, we have encountered painful situations many, many times in our life. From the time that we were just born to being infants, to being children, to being teenagers, and being adults. We've encountered painful situations that have brought up really difficult emotions, levels of fear or anxiety or betrayal or guilt or shame or hatred or wanting that we couldn't cope with, that they overwhelmed our ability to understand. And not being able to cope with them, being frightened by the strength of our emotions, at some time or another, we've closed down on them because they were just too much for us at that young age. So we tried to find a way to escape from them, to push them down under and to put our mind somewhere else, often into thinking, again, as Rodney said last night. So we have, over the course of a lifetime, stored up these unresolved emotions. They've uh, settled in our muscles, in our tissues, they formed contractions, and they've uh, taken our mental energy to hold them. So we have, over years of living, of unconscious living, deluded living, we've become contracted, and in that contraction, more armored, more defended, and less alive in our bodies and in our minds. As awareness starts to penetrate the mind-body system through the practice of mindfulness, we start to uncover these layers of holding. And as we uncover them, often there's a big release 
big or small, release of some of these stored energies. So in addition to the deeply conditioned tendencies of mind, there are also these accumulations that in retreat practice particularly, where the awareness is sustained and can penetrate the layers in the mind and the body, these pieces often come up. Sometimes just physical energy, sometimes emotional energy, sometimes with an image or a memory of a specific event. Sometimes not. So as we practice, and as I've observed myself in practice and a lot of people in practice, there are some really common patterns that uh, meditators touch on in retreat. And I want to talk about these uh, tonight in, in brief. One way to look at it is the five hindrances, and that's a very useful list for meditators. But another kind of more common list that I see are the forces of wanting, sadness, of fear, of anger, and self-judgment. These are kind of the emotions that come very, very often uh, to meditators in retreat. And things that, as part of our practice, we really need to learn how to work with. So we'll take one in detail and go through it. But I want to just say that every one of these has three components that it's really useful to look into, to investigate, explore, open up, uh, and go into. First is the mental state itself. Every one of them has a kind of coloring or mood in the mind. Sadness is different from fear, is different from anger, etc. The second thing is that when they're strongly felt, they have an impact in the body. Any strong emotion will be felt in the body as it's happening. The third thing is they have a connection to thoughts. Sometimes they'll be triggered by thoughts. Sometimes when we feel a certain way, we'll think certain kinds of thoughts. So the thoughts trigger the emotion, and the emotion triggers thoughts. And then there's a particular kind of thought that's really important to see, which is what you might call the storyline with the emotion. Each of these emotions comes with a kind of view, a belief. And if we don't see that view, we're going to get sucked into it, believe in it, buy into it, and it's going to defeat our getting close to the emotion. So let me take one as an example. Rodney talked a lot last night about desire, so I want to talk tonight about sadness. So first, there's a kind of mental tone in sadness. There's a mood, there are many names for it, Uh, melancholy, sorrow, loss, disappointment. And most people feel this at some point on retreat. It may be some uh, deep grief from the loss of someone that we've loved. It may be a sense of loss of some joy that we had in childhood or earlier in our life. It may be just a sense of disappointment. Everybody's been disappointed in life. We all share in that. Then there are the body sensations. If sadness is strong, a lot of people point to their chest as the location of it. And there's often a kind of contraction in the chest and a kind of tenderness or vulnerability or softness in the sensations in the chest. The storyline with sadness often that keeps us away from it is, if I open to this, I'll never come out of it. I'll drown in it. It will overwhelm me. It will sweep me away. And because of that, we're afraid to actually open and touch the sadness. But that's just a belief. So can we open to the sadness? How do we do that in meditation? I'm going to go through a little uh, series of instructions. Use sadness as the example But please remember that the same instructions can apply for any of these strong emotions, for wanting, for anger, for fear, for self-judgment, etc. So, when sadness is present, see if you can connect to the body where you're feeling it. It's hard to stay in touch with a mind state. They're so cloud-like. They're vague. They're much more difficult to connect with than the breath or a sensation. But if you can find where the emotion is expressing in the body, you can connect with it there, and that's more stable. 
So with sadness, if there's a contraction in the chest, a constriction, a kind of soft constriction, let your attention settle in the chest. And note, using the noting is very helpful here, just note something like contraction, tenderness, whatever the sensations are. Then as you're resting the attention in the chest, also go back and tune into the mood. This is the mental piece. The mood, you might just name it, sadness or sorrow or grief, whatever the particular flavor of it is. And let yourself just feel that emotion as a mind state directly. Now, a lot of thoughts may be coming and going around the sadness. It may be the belief, oh, I can't go into it, it's too much. It may be memories of specific losses, specific people, specific times in your life. As far as possible, just let the thoughts come and go. Don't get too involved in pursuing them. Notice that they're there. They'll have a certain flavor. But try not to get involved going down that track. So mostly, go back and forth between the physical sensation and the mental tone or the mood of that emotion. Now, the attitude is really important. We're not trying to change anything in our awareness of the sadness. We're not trying to make it go away. We're not trying to make it get smaller. We're also not trying to open it up and make a project out of it. Because we can do that with emotions. Emotions can be a long-term project in meditation. And a lot of people come, come to meditation with the motivation to heal the emotional life. I did myself. But I found out there are some problems with healing as a motivation in meditation. There's some problems with that. The, the first one is, how do you know when you're done? How do you know when you're done with healing? Do you just need to heal back to the level of a normal neurotic person? <laughs> and once you're normal again, can the healing stop and you can go on with your life? Suzuki Roshi, who's a great Zen master, once opened a Dharma talk like this. He said, the difficulties you're experiencing now, and he just stopped. Long pause. Everybody's attention was riveted on him. And then he continued. The difficulties you're experiencing now will be with you for a very long time. Now, how do we hear that? That could be kind of depressing. (laughs) Jeez, I thought I was getting rid of this stuff. But the way he really intended it and the way you can take it if you think about it, it's really liberating. It's really liberating. It means that the way to freedom is not that we have to get rid of these emotions. We all have the whole package. The whole human package includes sadness and fear and doubt and self-judgment and anger and disappointment and sorrow and blame and wanting and joy and happiness and compassion and love and calm and peace. We all know all of these things. So it's not about in the beginning stages of the path, intermediate stages of the path, quite advanced stages of the path. It's not about getting rid of these things. According to the traditional teachings, none of these emotions go away until the third stage of enlightenment, which is a very high level of freedom. Very high. It's the stage before full liberation. So we accept the fact that these states of mind will be visiting us for a long time. So what does healing mean? It doesn't mean that we get rid of them. Okay, second problem with healing as a motivation is it won't take us all away. If that's our sole motivation for coming into Dharma practice, it won't take us to liberation. Well, it can take us away, but it won't take us all the way. And there's a third problem with healing, and this is probably the most interesting from my point of view. If we think we need to heal, there's an underlying belief that we usually associate with that. And that is the belief that we're broken. I have to heal means there's something wrong with me as I am. That I'm broken. I've gone wrong in some way. And this is a crippling kind of view to take up if we really believe that we're broken. 
And I don't understand the range of mind that's usually described as psychosis. I haven't gone into it. I haven't studied it. I don't know about that. But I will say for everybody in this room, you are not broken. You have not been broken. Short of psychosis, which I just don't know about. Even the suffering that we are exposed to is a lawful suffering. It has its causes and it has its conditions. It comes because of certain reasons. We don't understand them all. We may never understand them all. But it's not coming because there's something wrong with us. We are just operating, developing, and unfolding along the natural laws of cause and effect. Operating in this world, operating in this universe. We never got broken. And because of that, we don't need to be put back together. So there is a lot of healing that happens in meditation, but that view is in a way an incomplete one. It's a noble motivation in coming to meditation, but it's not a complete one. So, as these uh, conditioned tendencies, as these accumulations come to mind, and we touch them with mindfulness, we can find a lot of freedom in relation to them. As you practice with them, you'll discover this freedom, little by little. I want to suggest a mnemonic that was, as far as I know, it was invented by a colleague of ours, Michelle McDonald-Smith, who teaches here at IMS. And I found it a really, really helpful reminder of how to work with difficult emotions. The mnemonic is RAIN, R-A-I-N. And it stands for recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-identification. So let's say a difficult emotion is coming, like sadness. The first step is to recognize it and just say, oh, this is sadness. So naming it is very helpful. Even if you don't use noting throughout the day, in your sittings, in your walkings, in your in-between times, it's very helpful to use a soft note in connection with these emotions. There's something about getting the right name for what we're feeling that loosens the fixation of it. There's a way in which once we recognize it, awareness and wisdom hold it in a different way. So finding out what you're feeling is a very, very fruitful investigation. Come close to that mental state and see what the best name you can find for it is. Recognize it. The second step is acceptance. This actually doesn't mean we have to do something special or something positive. It really means just we drop our resistance to it. We drop the sense, this shouldn't be happening. I don't want it here. When can it go away? It better be gone by tomorrow or I'm leaving the retreat. I really didn't come here to experience this in the first place. Something's going wrong with my meditation. I was peaceful yesterday and now I'm not. We drop all those judgments and just let ourselves feel directly the energy of sadness. We just open to it and accept it to the extent we can. The third factor that really helps the acceptance is the quality of interest. If we can get curious about it, what does sadness feel like? How does it feel in the body? How does it feel in the mind? What kind of thoughts come when it's there? What does it make me feel about myself? How do I see the world when I'm in this place of sadness? Once we can get interested, that brings a wholesome quality to our relationship to it, and it perks up the whole situation. And the last is non-identification. This means we don't take it as I or me or mine. We don't say it's my sadness. We don't say I'm sad. We just say sadness is present. It's just another of the pieces of the human package. It's arisen in this moment. It will last for a while. It will pass away. Just part of the changing weather. It's this quality of passing that makes all the emotions safe to go into. If you open to any emotion, you'll find it'll be there for a while. It may not be pleasant, but in time it will go away. Is there any emotion that's lasted since this retreat started? Has anybody seen one that hasn't gone yet? They all come and they all go. 
And this is why we can basically trust them. It's why it's safe to open to these feelings. We can let them come, they'll last for a while, and on their own, without our trying to push them away, each one in its own time will go. Because they're impermanent, they really can't hurt us. It was the fear of them that made us close down on them and store them in the body that has caused all the havoc. And to see a really kind of enlightened way of relating with emotions, half enlightened, I should say, look at kids. If kids feel happy, they're totally happy. They just go completely into that experience of joy. If they're feeling scared, they're really scared. They don't hold back from it. If they're angry about something, they really let you know. So kids have this really unafraid way of going completely into the emotion, and then it may be five minutes later or ten minutes later, they're completely out of it. That's the kind of emotional fluency that we can have. Now, what kids don't have is the wisdom not to act on it. So they do tend to spread their suffering around a little bit with it. We can learn not to spread it around. But we can have that same openness of being unafraid to go right into the emotion and feel it 100%. When people talk about equanimity in meditation as something that develops, sometimes people think, oh, well, I guess all my emotions go away. And sometimes think, well, that might be not a bad thing. And then other people think, no, I don't want that at all. But I want to just say from what I can figure out so far of the path, that does not happen does not happen that the emotions go away as though we've had an emotional lobotomy you know, and taken out all the things that cause us pain and we walk around like zombies. I think the equanimity develops in relation to the emotions that it's okay to feel the whole range of them. And so the emotions don't disturb us so much anymore, just like they don't disturb kids. Kids can go right into them for the most part and come right out. So we develop that quality. We find again that quality. We can let ourselves feel it fully and we find it will pass on its own. So as we touch the emotion of sadness deeply, we open to it as fully as we can. We don't have any intention of changing it, of making it go away or making a project out of releasing it. Then what's interesting is this full acceptance puts us back into the neighborhood of purity. It puts us back into the neighborhood of ultimate truth because we've relaxed all our doing. We've relaxed all our concepts about it and we've just come into this full, awake relationship with what is. The purity doesn't deny the emotion. We find the purity right in the middle of these strong emotions. And in a way, you might say the purity surrounds the emotion. And this is a miracle. This is like a miracle of practice. In normal daily life, we don't know anything than perpetuating these emotions and waiting for them to run their course. But in practice, we find in the middle of one of these emotions, we can rediscover our innate purity of mind, which is awake, peaceful, and friendly. So when we do that, we're reconnecting with our deepest nature And the emotion starts to dissolve into that purity. There's this great Indian teacher named Nisargadatta Maharaj. He taught in Bombay in the 70s and 80s. And he worked in the form of dialogue. So a Westerner was talking with him and said, "Uh, I'm having difficulty with some pain. And Maharaj said, you need to accept it. And the Westerner said, but pain is unacceptable. I can't accept it. And Maharaj said, why not? Did you ever really try? Do try, and you will find in pain a joy that pleasure cannot yield. For the simple reason that pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self with its hopes and fears returns you to your true nature, the source of all happiness and peace. This is really the mingling 
of the ultimate truth and the conventional truth. The conventional truth is that I, as a man, some years ago in time, accumulated a store of disappointment that is now being touched by this force of purity. It's not that this story is is untrue. There is a truth in this story. It's a conventionally true story. But the freedom comes in a deeper dimension than the story points to. The freedom is found by going beyond the concepts to the ultimate layer that's below. So the ultimate truth is, what's happening in this moment? What's happening with this awareness meeting the experience of sadness in this moment? There are sensations in the body connected with the feeling. There's a mental tone of sad and thoughts are coming and going. The breath is also coming and going. Sounds are arising and passing. Other sensations in the body are coming and going. This is what's really happening in the moment. This, in a way, is the truth, the real truth of this moment. Not the story. This is the real truth of this moment. And when we start to see in this way, we're starting to see a little bit of emptiness. We're starting to see without the fixed center of things, the owner, the self, the project of healing that's coagulated around the experience of sadness. This is very freeing. This is where the freedom lies in relationship to the sadness. It's not that the sadness has to go away. It's that it gets held by this purity of awareness, of steadiness, of friendliness, of acceptance. This ultimate truth, which we talked about as our Buddha nature, is quite impersonal. It's pretty much the same for every one of us. But the conventional truth is quite personal. The reason my sadness got lodged there may have been because I lost something very precious when I was six years old. And I was never allowed to cry about it fully at the time. That's a really personal story. And the way that the practice unfolds often is this impure, uh, sorry, this impersonal force of purity starts to expand and grow until it hits these personal pockets of holding. And as the personal is, is held by the impersonal, the personal gets released. And as it does that, a lot of the old holding and even the story and the personality get loosened up. And that's why when you see masters, meditation masters, there's very little sense of past for them. You know, the Buddha didn't go out and teach once he was awakened and say, you know what you want to know about me is I was born a prince in a kingdom in northern India, and I had a lot of uh, you know, fun when I was a kid, and my guardians taught me archery. That's not what the Buddha was interested in talking about. He talked about the way things are, the nature of things. But the personal is also significant, also significant. We can talk about it in the tradition. You know, bringing the flower in tonight reminds me of the story you may have heard before of the fl- what's called the flower sermon, which was the start, supposedly the start of the Zen tradition. And the story is that the Buddha held up a flower in front of a whole assembly of monks and nuns and practitioners, held up a flower and didn't say a word. And nobody got it except one person who was Mahakashapa. And Mahakashapa got it and just acknowledged to the Buddha that he'd gotten it. And that was the end of the flower sermon and the start of the Zen tradition. As soon as I heard that story, I knew I was going to have some trouble with Zen. (laughs) Which I think is why I ended up in Vipassana. But I think that teaching is really a pointer to the union of the conventional and the ultimate that is symbolized by the flower. You know, in one way, this flower is not different from any other flower. It's got a stem, it's got leaves, it's got petals, it's got stamen and pistils to propagate itself. 
There's the reproduction theme again. It's not different from any other flower. And yet, as you look at it, I think this is a carnation. It's not a rose. It's like a rose in a lot of ways, but it's not a rose. If you look at the beauty of this flower, it's very individual. It's really unique. And this personal uniqueness of its expression is what's called in the tradition its suchness. But at the same time, you know that that suchness is underlain by its emptiness. Its individuality is just made up of different arrangements of common components. So that's like that with each one of us. Someone is a rose, someone's a carnation, someone's a gardenia. We all have different fragrances and scents and individual beauties. In that way, the path, the unfolding is quite personal. But the components that we're all made up of are the same. Sadness, fear, joy, happiness, compassion, equanimity. So it's not really quite right to say that we're the same. Because a rose isn't the same as a carnation. But it's also not quite right to say we're really different. Because we're basically the same package. Just little variations in the mix. So maybe the terms same and different don't apply between you and me. Maybe our relationship is in some other dimension than that. We're not the same. We're not different. This is not just idle philosophical uh, mind play. But when you really start to get the sense that we're not different, you get in touch with this poem by Rumi's master, who was a Sufi called Shams of Tabriz. Not many poems have come down from Rumi's teacher, but this is one. I, you, he, she, we. In the garden of mystic lovers, these are not true distinctions. In the garden of mystic lovers, these are not true distinctions. In the garden of clear seeing, these are not true distinctions either. So the insight into the emptiness of things, the ultimate truth of things, takes away the barriers. It takes away the differences that concepts have created. And we understand that our basic nature, the nature of reality for you, is exactly the same as the nature of reality for me. But at the same time, we're different flowers. And there's an individuality that's also true the level of conventional truth. As we connect with this sadness and we reestablish the contact with purity, then it's really important not to lose our mindfulness. And this often happens. As people start to experience the purity, the mindfulness goes blank. And it's actually a lot easier to be mindful with difficulty than it is with ease. Because what happens is we start to think, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. Now I'm back in purity. Oh, this is what's supposed to be happening. And then we take it for granted. Instead of seeing, oh, this is the wholesome state of mind. This is mindfulness. This is peace. This is equanimity. This is ease. So as you touch these cycles of purity in your practice, really, really important to notice those states of mind just as much as you notice the difficult. Because if you don't notice that they're there, you're going to think your practice is all about the difficult. In fact, these moments of peace are coming in many, 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 many times during the day. All we have to do is wake up and notice them. But if we're not alert... If we're going to sleep because we take them for granted, we won't ever notice that they're there. Also, this idea, this is the way things are supposed to be, is delusional. There is no way things are supposed to be. There's only the way things are. Things are the way they are because of past causes and conditions. There's no other way they could be. So this idea that there's some way they're supposed to be is a fiction. 
There is no way that things are supposed to be. The Buddha's reference point was emptiness. It wasn't a concept of how things are supposed to be. Emptiness really means the understanding nothing is there from the beginning. Nothing is there all the time. No state of mind is intrinsically and always present. So anything that appears is interesting. Anything that appears is different from emptiness different from nothing there from the beginning. So we notice the wholesome, we notice the positive, and we trust in that. And the more we can relax and trust in this positivity, the more we have the engine that carries the journey and can carry it all the way, all the way to liberation. There are many, many beautiful unfoldings along the way. Healing happens. Concentration happens, insight happens, uh, extraordinary openings, joy and love come along the path. But the Buddha said, don't stop at any of those. I just want to close with this quote from a sutta called The Simile of the Heartwood from the Majjhima Nikaya that describes the Buddha's view of the purpose of this unfolding. This holy life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its end. It doesn't have virtue for its end. It doesn't have concentration for its end. It doesn't have knowledge and vision for its end. But it is the unshakable deliverance of mind that is the purpose of this holy life, its end and its completion. Let's just sit for a minute, please. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 25, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.